right, let's get into the word. Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34. I'm excited to unpack uh, this latter part of, the, uh, of chapter 34 with you. Last week, we talked about Moses seeing God's glory. We talked about Moses seeing God's glory and the impact of seeing God's glory and what it does to a person to see God's glory and what does it mean to see God's glory. Today we want to talk about the responses to seeing God's glory. I mean, last week we walked through one of the most unbelievable moments that in my mind that we find in Scripture. Easily one of the most unbelievable moments that we find in Scripture. That when, when God shows up and he shows his glory to Moses. And, and, and so today the question is, how do you respond after a moment like that? What happens when you experience a moment like that? What happens when you come into contact with the glory of God? And this text that we're going to walk through together, Exodus 34, uh, verses 8 and, and on, it shows us three separate responses at least to this encounter that Moses had with God. The first response is Moses' response. The second response is God's response. And then the last response is the people's response, Israel's response. Let's start with Moses. How did Moses respond after seeing God's glory? The first thing that happens is reverence and worship. Reverence and worship. Verse 8, it says, and Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. He bowed his head and he worshiped. When we come face to face with the living God, we should expect nothing less than this sort of reverence on display. A bowing of the head and a worshiping of God. Moses, in the presence of this great God, after God demonstrates or shows forth his glory, is able to see just how lowly he really is and just how insignificant he really is in comparison to this holy and glorious God. And so there is reverence, there is worship after a humbling of sorts, after a awareness of his smallness and then significance in the grand picture, in the grand scheme. But also another thing happens for Moses. This unbelievable experience that Moses is happening, is, is experiencing rather in this moment, only further solidifies his desire and need for God to be with them. So he moves from worship and reverence to prayer and petition. We see it in verse 9. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight. Oh, Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Lord, I've seen your glory. Now I know that I need you to go with us. Here's something that Moses says that I love. Again, I want to read verse 9. Oh, Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us for it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin. Take us for your inheritance. I love this. 
Recall what led to this exchange between God and Moses. If you, if you haven't been with us the last couple of weeks, I'll just recap quickly. But we read about it a few weeks ago in chapter 33. God says early on in chapter 33, I'm not going with you, Israel. I'm not going with you, Moses. I'll give you the land that I promise you, but I'm not going with you. I'll take out the enemies that are blocking your way, but I'm not going with you. I'll put you in a place that is flowing with milk and with honey, but I am not going with you. You'll have the provision that I promised you, but I'm not going. You'll have the security that I promised, but I'm not going. But Moses and Israel both realize that this is not enough. It's not enough to have the blessing and the security and the comfort and the provision of a land flowing with milk and honey if God is not there. They know that they need God with them if they are ultimately going to survive in this area. And fast forward to what we just heard in verse 9 of chapter 34. Moses concedes to God, yes. We are a stiff-necked people. That's why we need you to go. You understand that? We are a stiff-necked people. That's why we need you to go because if you don't go, because we're stiff-necked, we're not going to survive. It doesn't matter what you send with us. You can send with us your provision, you can, send with, you can send us to a land flowing with milk and honey, you can conquer our enemies, but because we are a stiff-necked people, if you don't go, we won't survive. We will not and cannot last without you. Moses is making his case for God to go, not in the righteousness of Israel, but he's making his case for God to go in the truth of who Israel really is. Lord, you are right. We are a stiff-necked people. That's why we need you. That's why we need you to pardon our sin. That's why we need you to pardon our iniquity. That's why we need you to take us as your inheritance. Rightly so. Moses is making an appeal based on what God has declared about himself. You understand that? Moses is making an appeal, basically saying, let's, let's stop for a second. Let me back up. Remember God's words when God passed by Moses in glory. Exodus 34, verse 5 and 7, 5 through 7. He says this. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, listen, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. God declares in that moment as he's passing by Moses who he is at his very core. 
He declares that he is a merciful God. He declares that he is a gracious God. He declares that he is a patient God. He declares that he is a loving God, a faithful God, a righteous God, yet a forgiving God. And Moses is now here saying, Lord, we need you to be that for us. You understand that? We are stiff-necked, Lord. We are sinful, Lord. That's why we can't go without you. And Lord, all the things that you told me you were, merciful, gracious, forgiving, Lord, I need you to be that for us because of who we are. In other words, be who you are because of who we are. See, some of you guys... You, 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 you are either not honest about who God is sometimes or you're not honest about who you are sometimes. You need to be honest with both. You need to say, God, I know who I am. I need you to be who you are. I'm not running from who I am. In fact, in, in fact, yes, Lord, I am, I am wayward. I am prone to stray. I am at times disobedient. But, Lord, you are gracious. Lord, you are merciful. Lord, you are patient. Lord, you are loving. And so because of who I am, I need you to be who you are to me. Some of you think you're too sinful for God to go with you. But Moses is sharing a truth with us this morning, and it is this. We're too sinful for God not to go. He has to go because we're sinful. We're not going to make it unless he goes. You're not going to make it in this life. You're not, you, there's, no, there's no way for you and I. There's no, there's, no, there's no path for you and I in this life or the next without God going for us and with us. You see, you need this holy but merciful God to go with you. You need this righteous but gracious God to go with you. You need this perfect but patient God to go with you. Because if you take, if the only thing you take into this journey with you is you, you will be destroyed. And so will I. And that's what Moses understood in this moment. And that's why Moses makes the petition that he makes. Also notice a very important point in Moses' prayer. He is rooting it. In the very nature of who God is, remember God passes by, he preaches, he shares, and he tells everybody who he is. And Moses says, that's who I need you to be. You said you're forgiving, forgive us, pardon us. This is what one theologian says about that particular passage. He says, God invites us to pray the way Moses prayed. We ought to make our intercession on the basis of his gracious promises and glorious perfections. God has promised never to leave us or forsake us. So we say, Lord Jesus, I know you said that you would stay with me. So as I enter this new situation, I pray that you will go with me by the power of your spirit. 
he continues, he says, God has told us that he is a forgiving God in Jesus Christ. So, ma so no matter what we have done, ask him to pardon all of our sin. God has also promised, he continues, to take us as his own inheritance. In other words, he has declared that we belong to him in the covenant. We are his possession and we cannot be taken from him. So we ask God to make us fully his own, begging him to be our God both now and forever. This is the way that we should pray and keep on praying, end quote. In other words, what he's saying is that when you think on the nature of who God is, then you should align your prayers based on that nature. When you pray, are you praying this way? Are you going to God and reminding him of his nature, reminding him of his promises towards those who love him? When you sin... And you come and you, and are, are you retreating in fear of God? Or are you returning back to God saying, God, you're merciful. You're patient. You're loving. You're gentle. You're, you're kind to us. You are forgiving of us. And so, Lord, I know I am sinful and I know I have sinned. But because of who you are, I seek your face. Are you tracking with that? When, when, when provision is low, when, when there is nothing in the cupboard, so to speak, and, all, and the shelves and the cabinets are bare, are you going to God and are you saying, God, I don't have the provision, but you are a provider. It's part of who you are. And I know because of who you are, you will provide for me. And so I seek you not based on what I have, but I seek you based on who you are. Jesus provides. Are you going to God and are you making your prayers based on his nature? Not based on yours. Based on his nature. That's what Moses does. How does God respond to Moses' response? Verse 10, he said, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as, has, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. God responds to Moses' plea by telling Moses that he is about to do something spectacular for Israel. His presence rejoining with Israel is going to produce and create marvels that God says the world has never, ever seen before. So this is great news for us all. This is great news for Israel. This is great news for Moses. But there are two things that I want you to be sure you hear at the very beginning of his response. First of all, he says in his response, and all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for, is, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. And so we find in that, in those words, we find a deeper motivation for the work that God is preparing to perform. And that motivation is this, that he may be glorified. God is going to honor his promises despite the faithfulness or faithlessness of the people. He is going to honor the reminders that Moses gives him about his own nature 
his nature of mercy and his nature of grace and his nature of love and his nature of patience. He is going to forgive Israel and be present with them. He is going to do marvelous things among Israel or amongst Israel. And he is going to do all of it, not simply for Israel's sake, but he's going to do all of it in order that he may be glorified. It is for this reason that you and I can take great confidence that God will honor his word towards us. That he will honor his nature in dealing with us. He will never leave you if you are, if you are his and you belong to him through Christ Jesus. He will never forsake you if you have declared Jesus Christ as Lord by faith. He will perform mighty works through us and for us, and he will do it all in order that his name might be glorified in this earth. You see, even when we are faithless, he will do it for his own glory's sake. And so here Israel, stumbling and fumbling about, never ever quite getting it right, still has a God who is willing to intervene. Why? So that others may see this God and give glory and honor and praise to this God. So that others may see this God and glorify this God. Here's the second thing I want you to notice about God's response to Moses. He talks about doing marvels. But he is doing this marvelous thing because he is reestablishing his covenant with Israel. At the very beginning of his response, in this text, in verse 10, he says, Behold, I am making a covenant. Here God is actually not really making a new covenant. In fact, we're not going to spend much time um, in these sections in, in this text this morning. But when you look at verses um, um, 17 all the way through uh, verse 27 or 26, God begins to lay out laws and practices for worship and festivals and feasts. And they all look very similar to what we've already established in Exodus. So God is not really building anything new in this text. He's reaffirming and reestablishing and recommitting to what he's already set forth. But in so doing, God is making something very clear with Moses. And I need you to... Hear me when I say this because it's very important. We don't get to enjoy God's presence apart from God's relationship. We don't get to enjoy God's presence apart from God's relationship. You cannot invite God's presence into your life while remaining committed to the worship of other things. You cannot invite God's presence into your life while remaining committed to a covenant with idols. The God of the known and unknown universe is not inter interested in playing backup quarterback to any other idol in your life. So when Moses invites him in his presence, Moses is by default recommitting Israel to pursue faithfulness and fidelity to his God. 
and faithfulness and fidelity to the covenant that he has established with Israel. You see this in verses 11 through 13. He says this, verse 30, chapter 34, verses 11 through 13. Read this with me. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim. God says now that we have reestablished our covenant together. And so since we have reestablished our covenant together, I'm going to drive these enemies of yours out of your midst, but don't get too close to them. Do not enter into covenant with them. Don't preserve their temples. Don't preserve their altars. Tear them down. Why is this? Because of verse 14. He says, for you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. In other words, because you have covenant with me, you cannot enter into covenant with anyone else. Because you have covenant with me, you are to exclusively worship me. You cannot seek my presence and not my fellowship. You cannot seek my presence and say, well, we don't want your fellowship. We don't want your relationship. My presence comes with fellowship. My presence comes with covenant. My presence comes with relationship. What are, we to make, what are we to make of the word jealous that God uses in this text? You know, oftentimes when we hear the word jealous, it's typically a negative thing, right? Here in this text, not only does he say he's jealous, but he goes as far as saying, my name is jealous. In other words, at the very heart of who I am is jealous. We have to ask ourselves, what type of jealousy is God referring to then? Because typically when we hear the word jealous, we think, of, we think of it being a negative quality. But there is a such thing as a healthy jealousy and an unhealthy jealousy. When you talk about an unhealthy jealousy, what we see is, is unhealthy jealousy shows up when someone is um, in, uh, who is not in covenant relationship with another person but tries to operate as if they are. Perhaps a friend is jealous that one of their friends who they are fond of has rejected their advances but accepted the advances of another person. And they get angry about that. That's an unhealthy jealousy. That person doesn't belong to you. Or perhaps we see unhealthy jealousy when, when someone despises another person because they have what appears to be a much more enjoyable life than, than they do. Perhaps they have cars and houses and Clothes and a lifestyle that that jealous person craves. Or perhaps an unhealthy jealousy can even be found in a covenant relationship, in a marriage, where a person makes unfounded accusations against their spouse and claiming infidelity where there is no legitimate proof or history that any other reasonable, reasonable person would, would, would look at and say there's nothing there. 
and using that to refuse your spouse um, friendships and, and, and engagements and, and freedom outside of, the, outside of the home. All of that is unhealthy forms of jealousy. However, when we speak of God being jealous, we aren't referring to any of these things. In fact, this is what the theologian A.W. Pink says about God's jealousy. Listen, he says, first, God is jealous of his own glory. Though Isaiah, he, through Isaiah, he has declared, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another. Second, God is jealous of the affections of his people. He is grieved when our love is given to another. Third, he is jealous of his people. He that toucheth you toucheth the apple of his eye is his own avowal. So he is jealous for the affections of his people. He is jealous for his people. And he is jealous for his own glory. That's what A.W. Pink says, and I believe that he is right. In other words, what God is saying here by saying my name is jealous is that he is a jealous God in the same sense a husband um, who has observed his wife in an adulterous affair. He will not stand by idly and watch his wife give her love and affection over to another when she has pled fidelity and covenant to him. Why won't he stand for it? Because he's unreasonable? No. Why won't he stand for it? Because he's insecure? No, of course not. He is more than reasonable. He is more than secure. But he won't stand for it because he loves her. And he won't stand for it because he is in an exclusive covenant with her. When we ask for God's presence, we are asking to be in covenant relationship with God. We are pledging to exclusively worship God. And we don't live like, we, and, and, and we don't basically get to say, or we don't live life like the spouse who goes out and gives their love over to anybody else and then comes back home and looks their spouse in the eye and says, what are you making such a big deal about? That's not, that's not covenant. And we should not expect God to be okay with that. When we give ourselves over to God, when we say that he is our God, then we should expect our God to expect from us exclusivity. We shouldn't expect our God to just watch idly while we go about our way investing in other gods and then coming back and saying, well, I'm here, right? <laughs> I came to church on Sunday. I mean, I come home. What are you making such a big deal about? Just keep doing everything that you agreed to do. And don't worry so much about where I am and, where I'm, and what I'm doing. Does that sound, does that sound reasonable? Does that sound like something we should expect God to be okay with? No. And so when we hear the words that God is a jealous God, that's what we're referring to. The God of the universe will not settle for the role of being your side God. 
And so God warns Moses that this covenant makes no provision for the kind of idolatry that they just witnessed and they just experienced and they just took part in. If you want me, then you must have me alone, is what God is telling Moses. Here's another important part of this covenant also that God establishes with Moses. It's not just a rejection of idolatry. It is is a rejection of being joined with idolaters in any way. Let's read verses 12 through 14 again, but this time let's add verse 15 through 17. Read and listen closely as I read. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim, for you shall worship no other god for the Lord whose name is Jealous and is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. What God does here is he lays out this very interesting and important warning about a slippery slope into idolatry. What starts with a covenant with idolaters leads to tolerance of the idolaters' worship. And what continues as tolerance to the, or tolerance for the idolaters' worship eventually becomes a full giving over of ourselves to that idolatry, a joining of our worship with the worship of the idolaters. That's what God lays out. Let me ask you a question. Can you see any of this playing out in our day? Can you see any of this playing out possibly in our own lives, in your own life, in my own life? Without question, this happens. We are prone to get far too comfortable with idolaters and their idolatry for the sake of our security, for the sake of our comfort, for the sake of our acceptance amongst men, and and, and also in the search of satisfaction and in the search of peace and in the search of joy, we can get comfortable establishing alliances and covenants with idolaters. Let me ask you a question. How often do we see ourselves or others creeping close to political idolatry because we start off believing that they best represent our interests. And so we form covenants only to find ourselves at their altars, accepting their worship, and eventually becoming those or becoming like them by worshiping with them, walking away from our own God and replacing him with a lesser idol of political expediency, even mixing our God with that idol. Let me ask you another question. How often have we subtly replaced our covenant with God for a relationship with someone who is not a believer? Telling ourselves that it's not a big deal, we're just having fun. 
just need somebody to hang out with, you know. I mean, yeah, we go out on dates, but I mean, I just, I just need some company right now. Only to find ourselves eventually doing what? Accepting the altars and accepting the temples of their worship. Worshiping eventually at those same altars and those same temples. Those temples and altars possibly manifesting themselves in sexual immorality. Before you know it, we're saying to ourselves, what's the big deal? We love each other. How did we get from point A to point B? Because we left the covenant that we had with God in order to establish a covenant with idolaters and idolatry. You see, saints, when you compromise in your covenant with God, you are on the slippery slope of reneging in your covenant with God. This is the point that God is making with Moses in verse 16. Verse 16, he says, and you take of their daughters for, the, for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. This is, this is not a call away from interracial marriage. This is not a call away from marriages of different ethnicities and different cultures. This is not the point of this text as it sometimes has been suggested. What this is is saying when you connect yourselves in covenant with those who are connected to idols or connected to idolatry, you yourself will eventually compromise and turn towards those idols in covenant relationship with them. That's the point. And so God is laying these clear boundaries around Israel and saying, you belong to me. And because you belong to me, there is only one true covenant that you can establish. This does not mean that you can't go to work and have conversations with people who are not saved. In fact, we know according to the New Testament, when we read through the New Testament, that this is the way of the Christian, to engage with the world around us. What we're talking about is building covenant with people. What we're talking about is getting to the place where we are so comfortable that we tolerate the worship of other things besides God in our lives. That we get so comfortable that we begin to um, enjoy the, the, the altars in which other idolaters are worshiping at. And we begin to enjoy the temples in which they worship in. And that we get so comfortable that eventually we begin to try to justify these connections by, by syncretism. By taking the covenant with God and mixing it with the covenant of idols. God says, you can't have my presence without having my covenant. Thankfully, he's merciful in our, in our idolatry. Amen. When we look at the latter part of this text in closing, we find that in verse 28, we get, we get to Israel's response after verse 28. But real quickly, let me just fix, my attention, fix your attention on verse 28. It says, so he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights, and he neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the ten commandments. So again, remember, the last time Moses had some tablets, he came down from the mountain, saw Israel in their idolatry, and he threw the tablets down and broke them. And so that represented Israel breaking covenant with God. 
But here God in his mercy, that even though, we, even though Israel pursued idols, God in his mercy has did, did what? Reestablished covenant with them, reaffirmed his commitment to them. But what's interesting is that we find Moses here in the mountains for 40 days and 40 nights, fasting, praying and having communion with God, interceding for Israel. And there's another one that we know of whose testimony is very similar to Moses in this regard. It, he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And through his life, he interceded for a people who had broken their covenant with God, who chased lesser things. During those 40 days and 40 nights, he communed with God. And that person was Jesus Christ, a better Moses, a greater deliverer, a greater savior. Because unlike Moses, he was able to save to the other most. But when we look at verse 29, what we see is Israel's response to this experience that Moses had. So Moses has been up here 40 days with God. He's been fasting and demonstrating desperation before God. And then verse 29 says, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all of the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. And afterward, all the people of Israel came near him, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. You see, saints of God, because Moses had been with God, Israel was able to see and witness Moses shining. How did people know that Moses had been with God? Because literally his face was shining. Let me ask you a question. How will people know that you've been with God? How will they know that you've been in fellowship with God? How will, they, how will they know that you've been in fellowship with God and not bothered with making false covenants with idols? How will they know that you are seeking to see the glory of God and not chasing the lesser things of the world? The answer is simple. Because you too will also shine. Let this light so shine. That men may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. You will shine. One theologian says, for us, when we are with God, we will shine. Remember what they said about Peter and John in the early days of the church. When they saw their boldness, Luke said, when they observed that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and knew that they had been with Jesus. People looked and they saw these men and they were amazed and astounded at what these men were able to do and the words that these men spoke with and the boldness in which these men operated with. And they knew that they had been with Jesus. They shined. When we look at Jesus, we will shine like Jesus. When we behold Jesus and the glory of Jesus, we will shine like Jesus. 
when we dial back the distractions and we reject the idols of this world and refuse their covenants, we too shall shine. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15, we read it last week. It says, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. In other words, as we look on Christ, as we behold the glory of Christ, as we gaze at Christ and gaze away from the idols of this world, you and me shall shine. If your light is dull this morning, then I invite you to turn your gaze away from all of the distractions that exist when we walk out of these doors. And I invite you to turn your gaze over to Jesus. Because the longer that you look at him, the more you will shine. And the more evident it will be that you have been with God and that you belong to God. Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you and we give you all the praise and the glory.